As the 17th century came to a close, something bizarre and disturbing happened in the small town of Salem, Massachusetts. Twenty people were murdered by the authorities for the crime of being witches. How can we understand an event like this? As it turns out, we're going to have to start off by looking at some of the background of concepts of witchcraft, magic, and even evil itself, which is exactly what we'll do on the other side of the theme song. This is all a test. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Uncover Up. I am one of your co-hosts, Lee Kunle, and with me, as always, is Professor Nathan Radke. Hi, Nathan. Hey, how's it going? I'm well, thanks. How are you? I want to start off by talking about the Dunning-Kruger effect. Oh, okay. So you're fine then. Well, I mean, this this goes some way to explain how I am. Let's do some inside baseball for the All listeners right. and explain what happened. So you wanted to do an episode on the Salem witch trials. Yep. That's a good, solid episode for sure. But, but, but things really got away from us. Yeah, things got out of hand. I mean, they got away from us in the research stages. Normally they get away from us in the taping stage, but this started to balloon into like 10 episodes while we were still reading about it. And, and the problem is, I think both of us went into this thinking, oh yeah, this will be one of the easier episodes we do, because we already pretty much know what happened in the Salem witch trials. Yeah, I know what witches are. Yeah, I know what witches are, I know what trials are, like case closed. But the problem was, once we started to investigate it, we realized very quickly, well, we can't talk about Salem without talking about King James and his demonology and the laws he passed about witchcraft in, in England because those were influential in Salem. And then we thought, well, no, we also have to then look to the continent to see how ideas of witchcraft sort of formed originally. And then we realized, oh, wait, no, ancient Greece, probably. And this is the Dunning-Kruger effect in action. The less you know about something, the less you know about what you don't know. And so this happens to us pretty much constantly. Every time we get a new episode, I think, oh, this is fine. I already know about this. But that's me suffering from the Dunning-Kruger effect. It isn't that I already know about it. It's that I know so little about it, I don't realize how much there is to know about it. And so now it's like a month later, and we've each read like 30 books. And we, I think, certainly my experience is now, I think I know significantly less than I thought I knew. Like, I got more and more confused and less confident in anything that I knew about what I thought I knew. And that's the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is, as you say, when you don't know things, you feel very confident about making statements and about your grasp of a certain subject. And the contrary experience of the Dunning-Kruger effect is the imposter syndrome, which is when you know a lot about something, but you also therefore know how much you don't know. And so you feel like you can't say anything about it. And I think we often make that transition from feeling very confident about a subject before we do the research to the time we show up at the podcast. We, I mean, we, you and I just had an hour conversation about how to start this podcast today. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and so now let's start it. Okay. And so let's begin the episode by talking about some of the problems we've had. Why don't we discuss the difficulties in looking into the past? I mean, we always do that, right? We always look to historical context when we're trying to set up a conspiracy. When we talked about September 11th, we started like 50 years earlier. But there's a problem with looking back. That problem gets worse and worse the further back you have to go. Mm. And I think the best way to understand this problem is to start with a quote from philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein. Oh, dear. Okay. So you're going to have to translate this for the listeners. All right, all right. Wenn ein Löwe sprechen konnte, wir konnten ihn nicht verstehen. Hey, that's very well done. If a lion could speak, we wouldn't understand what it's saying. Exactly. That's a nice translation. Thank you very much. But it was an easy sentence, to be fair. Yeah, I, I would only attempt an easy German sentence. The problem isn't just one of language. Like, what does he mean when he says that even if a lion could speak our language, we couldn't understand it? It's a problem of perspective and context. We don't have any idea what it's like to be a lion. 
or how the lion experiences the world, or the sorts of things a lion would be interested in or pay attention to. So even if you're in a room and the lion speaks English and you speak English, you're not going to be able to understand each other. Like, imagine if I tried to tell the lion, my father was poor but honest. Right. Is the lion going to make any sense of that at all? Hmm. When we go into the past, I think we're bumping into kind of a similar problem. I mean, biologically, obviously, people in the past are the same as we are now. But we're not just biological animals. We are also cultural animals. Culture and my history and my biography and also, to some extent, my, my uh, biology are absolutely fundamental in generating meaning for me. What I pay attention to, how I understand it, where to delineate what one thing is and where another thing uh, starts. Culture and history totally inform how we understand things. And so if we're looking back 300 years, 400 years, we're going to be basically looking at cultures that we don't speak the same language as, even if we're speaking the same language. Yeah. We're not going to have the same references. We're not going to be starting with the same perspectives. I mean, the issue is when you investigate the past, you can't help but bring the present with you. Exactly. Uh, Let's let's look at some examples, because we're talking about witches. Yeah. Why don't we look at two different versions of looking into the past at witches in Europe? Okay. And and we'll position them from where they start. So I'm going to start with a guy called Montague Summers, Uh, He is an ordained clergyman in the 1920s. He's fascinated with the occult. I'll let him now describe to you what the witch is. Because he claimed he saw... The witch as she really was. A social pest and parasite. The devotee of a loathly and obscene creed. An adept at poisoning, blackmail, and other creeping crimes. A member of a powerful secret organization inimical to church and state. A blasphemer in word and deed. Swaying the villagers by terror and superstition a charlatan, and a quack sometimes, a bod, an abortionist, the dark counselor of lewd court ladies and adulterous gallants, a minister to vice and inconceivable corruption, battening upon the filth and foulest passions of the age. So Montague Summers looks back in time at the witches, and he sees that. Now, why don't you give us another example of looking back in time at the witches? So this one comes from a lecturer in English from the University of Reading, Her name is Diane Perkis, and she has written a book called The Witch in History, Early Modern and 20th Century Representations. And this is actually page one of chapter one of her book. She writes, Here is a story. Once upon a time, there was a woman who lived on the edge of a village. She lived alone in her own house, surrounded by her garden, in which she grew all manner of herbs and other healing plants. Though she was alone, she was never lonely. She had her garden and her animals for company. She took lovers when she wished, and she was always busy. The woman was a healer and a midwife. She had practical knowledge taught to her by her mother, and mystical knowledge derived from her closeness to nature or from a half-submerged pagan religion. She helped women give birth, and she had healing hands. She used her knowledge of herbs, and her common sense to help the sick. However, her peaceful existence was disrupted. Even though this woman was harmless, she posed a threat to the fearful. Her medical knowledge threatened a doctor. Her simple, true spiritual values threatened a superstitious nonsense of the Catholic Church, as did her affirmation of her sensuous body. Her independence and freedom threatened men. So the Inquisition descended on her and cruelly tortured her into confessing lies about the devil. So there are two very different interpretations of the same historical event. On the one hand, we have Montague Summers, who's looking back from the 1920s and seeing an evil demonic conspiracy, these these witches who are sort of unified in their desire to tear down everything decent and good in society with their spells and their poisons. And on the other hand, we have what? Well, we have what sounds like uh, sort of a proto-feminist, an independent, strong woman uh, who is not the wife and property of a man in the village, but who has a profession of her own, who is able to generate her own livelihood, who has a certain kind of status in the community. She is a healer. She is a midwife. She has specialized knowledge. And 
she poses a threat to um, chauvinistic, patriarchal, narrow-minded, overly religiously zealous men. And, and the funny thing is, I actually have encountered both these representations of witches in popular culture. Like, the one you describe is the witch in a horror film. And the one I described is, I don't know, maybe the witch of a kind of romantic story, or, or at least certainly a romantic drama of the past. So the one that I talked about comes from the 1920s. When would you say that your, the, the version of the witch that you read, when does that version of the witch show up in culture, would you say? Certainly that version comes from 70s academic literature. Yeah, that second one is much closer to the version of the, the witch trials that, that I would have believed in right. when I was going to Trent University in the 90s. Right, which for those not in Ontario is, and certainly was in the 90s, a kind of progressive, um, left-leaning center of study. Fine place to get educated. But the question is, are either of those interpretations accurate about what was happening in Europe during these witch trials? So now what we have to do is we're going to go the furthest back we've ever looked in order to investigate a conspiracy. <laughs> the gonna, beginning of time the beginning itself. Of time itself. We're going to have to take a lot of our assumptions and perspectives with us, and that's going to change what we see. We have to start off by saying we're going to have the same limitations as everybody has when they try to look to the past. We're going to bring our present with us. Yeah, that's fair. Although, can I also say that no, that the, these representations are not correct. And that is what caused the problem for us. Because again, we thought walking into this that something between these two representations was accurate. And now I am at the point where I'm not even sure I know what a witch is anymore. Excellent. That's a very good way to start a series of podcasts <laughs> on, on witches. So let's, let's start. Where we're are gonna we start, going? We're going to go back over 2,000 years. Let's start with ancient Greece. Okay. Okay. So I found a lot of witches prominently in ancient Greek myth literature. We've got uh, Circe, who seduces men to her island and then uses magic potions to turn them into pigs. Okay. Some classic witchery right there. We've got Hecate, the goddess of witchcraft and necromancy. But, of course, it's important to remember that these are legends, not histories. And that, that would be kind of like looking at modern Western society through superhero movies to try right. to decide what they were afraid of and what they were into. I mean, you might get something about like the, the collective subconscious of the society, but you're not going to get good information about what literally was going on. But there was a lot of magic in ancient Greece on a day-to-day -day level. But it was sort of hard to separate what we would consider to be magic from just sort of normal parts of everyday life. Like, how would you separate a potion, which is magic, from medicine, which we would consider to be mundane? Uh, numerology, which would be magic, from mathematics, which is mundane. Prayers to the Greek gods hoping for things versus casting a spell. Like, where do we say the magic is versus the, the mundane activity? Well, we had the same issue with astronomy versus astrology when we looked at that, because they start out as essentially the same discipline with different emphasis. And you're right. I mean, what is the difference between potion and medicine? And, and now we could make that claim. Now I could say that's a potion and that's medicine. Right. But we can't do that looking back at ancient Greece. No, because you, you would need to have a new paradigm emerge that only comes after a scientific revolution, where you have the distinction between the natural and the supernatural and yeah. these kinds of uh, and this is the problem already right from the beginning that you highlighted nathan already we're importing all our modern understandings of how the world is and these these oppositions that actually aren't operative at that time yeah it's tricky i mean we do know that for example we know that thousands of anti-curse amulets have been found so that seems to suggest that not only that people were concerned about being cursed, but that anti-curse protection was a pretty big business. On the other hand, when I went to Istanbul, you could get anti-curse amulets there. There are these things that would ward off the quote-unquote evil eye. They're quite charming to look at, and they get sold like crazy to tourists. Now, can we derive from that that all the tourists are worried about fending off curses? So even this kind of data, I mean, it is compelling, and I'm not suggesting that they don't believe in curses or don't believe in witchcraft, but already there we have the problem of what actually is the status of belief. I do a lot of things 
just because it's fun or because my friends are doing it or, you know, if everyone's got an amulet, I want one too. Maybe they won't hang out with me if I don't have one because they're worried about curses, you know? Yeah, I mean, that's why context is everything. Also, if you go to the city of Mississauga, there is a fantastic roti shop on here, Ontario Street. And they also, I haven't been there in a while, but they used to sell potions as well. Oh, yeah? Like very specific potions. Like if you had a court case coming up, there'd be a potion for that. Or if you wanted somebody to fall in love with you, a potion for that. That's clever. So, I'm, always, I'm always on the lookout for a side hustle. <laughs> potion making. Well, that's the thing about this idea of like the anti-curse protection being a big business. Like that is a part of it. There, It was part of the economy. Right. So... When we read the ancient Greek philosophers, when we go to Plato or we go to Aristotle, we don't see enough references to witches or magic to come to the conclusion that they were an important part of their worldviews. But you know, they, sorry, they also don't talk about sex or childbirth or any of that stuff either. So they are very bad sources when it comes to actually what matters in Greek life. It's true. And I guess in in the introduction to Socrates, Plato does talk about a witch because, of course, he talks about the Oracle of Delphi, who we'll talk about in a second. Well, I was going to ask, would that count as a witch? Well, if somebody is looking into the future, they're using magic to do so, I would say that that's some witchery. But again, we bump into this definition issue. But I will say this. Uh, This is something that we're reasonably sure of with the ancient Greeks. There were people who were prosecuted for using magic. But the evil doesn't come from the fact that they were using magic, but because of the evil that comes from the magic. If you're doing magic for the good of society, like the Oracle of Delphi, a.k.a. the Pythoness. Ooh, cool. Super cool. Then there's no problem. Like, you could be doing magic for the good of your society, in which case, bully for you. Okay. So it's not the magic that's evil to the Greeks, it's what you're using it for. So now we're going to move both forward and backwards at the same time, if that makes any sense. <laughs> and I say that because we're going to talk about a book which in some ways predates some of this ancient Greek stuff, but doesn't become important in Europe until after the Greeks, Okay. if you see what I mean, because we're talking about the Bible. Right, I see. Okay. Now it makes sense. If we look to the Bible, we can see more references to witches and witchcraft. Uh, most famously, Exodus twenty-two eighteen, the King James Bible reads, Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. Oh. That's pretty straightforward. Yeah, okay. Of course, it gets trickier, as all things do, because that's a translation. Earlier translations read something closer to, Thou shalt not tolerate a sorceress. Is there a difference between a sorceress and a witch? I legit don't know. Yeah, I also don't know. But the important thing is that the word definitely referred to a woman in both cases. Okay. And definitely referred to somebody who was casting spells or did magic. Now, is that important? That it Because is a witch a woman? I think historically this is going to be something that makes more sense the further we go along. As this idea of a witch is formed... Uh, questions like, well, like, what is a witch? We haven't even really answered that question yet. No. Because, but we haven't answered that question yet because I don't think the idea of a witch has formed yet. But hold on a second. If I'm in ancient Greece, the Pythoness, she knew what she was doing and sure. other people knew what she was doing. It wasn't a mystery. She got paid for that. Yeah. She um, was like an esteemed member of society. So The, the so, Pythoness would like but, have hallucinations that would give you insight. Does she not know this? Like, in what sense are we saying that the concept of witch is not operative? Well, because I think there's a missing piece to the witch as we understand the witch in the witch trials. Right. It isn't just somebody who is performing magic. There's another element to it. And I that see. element hasn't shown up yet. Okay. Okay. So so what you're saying is that the mo- our modern or potentially... The understanding we have of of what a witch is over the last 500 years is not this early idea of witchery. So even though they do stuff like divining the future and creating spells Making and potions. potions and all of that, there's something missing that's not yet emerged that is central to a late medieval, early modern European definition of the witch. Yeah, exactly. But I would also say that if we're looking back from the present as we do then we'd be like, oh, there's witches all up in this place. Right, right. But at the time, they wouldn't have been witches. 
Not in the modern sense. Not in the modern but sense. But they would have been in the early Greek sense, whatever that might have meant. And then it gets more confusing because, <laughs> of course, we have in the Bible, which people see as like this really authoritative book, obviously, thou shalt not tolerate a, a, a witch. But that's in the King James Version, which doesn't show up until like the 1600s. But don't we have injunctions against sorcery, divination, all of this kind of stuff in the Old Testament? Aren't well, there is even in Judaism, my understanding was, I mean, you may not look into the future, not that it's not possible, but that you're not supposed to do it as a devout Jew, and then later also as a devout Christian. But it gets even more complicated than that, uh, which is a sentence that I think we've said more often in this podcast than in all of our other podcasts combined for some reason. In the first book of Samuel, there is an odd story. King Saul yeah. is fighting the Philistines. Okay. He's having a hard time. Right. It's not going well. He wants some advice. The guy he really wants to talk to is Samuel, because that guy was wise. Okay. One problem, Samuel's dead. Mm. What are you going to do? Well, what Saul does is he seeks out, quote, a woman who consulted ghosts, or, quote, a medium, or, quote, fortune teller, or, quote, spiritist, depending on which version of the Bible you're okay. reading. Okay. But the thing that's clear is this is a woman who can talk to the dead. All right. And he wants to communicate with the prophet Samuel. And so he disguises himself and he meets with the woman. Now, she's nervous because Saul had previously forbidden any mediums or magicians. And she sees through Saul's disguise. She's like, wait a second. Like, you've banned all of us from practicing our magic within this area. And now you're coming to me asking me to practice the magic? I don't think so, buddy. But he's like, no, I swear to God, if you help me out, I will not punish you for doing your magic. Okay. She summons the ghost of Samuel for Saul. But all the ghost tells him is that Saul's going to lose the upcoming battle and get killed, which then does come true. Ah. So this is a really tricky story for religious scholars because the implications are that ghosts are real and you can summon them with magic. Mm. So what mm. do you do with this story? So Jewish scholars from about 200 BC argued that she was a trickster and a, and a ventriloquist. Ah, She okay. did not really summon Samuel. It was just all trickery. I see. But Protestant theologians like Martin Luther and Calvin argued that it was a trick, but it was a magic trick. It was a demonic trick played by Satan. Hmm. But the information the ghost gives appears to be genuine and accurate according to the story. So this story is interesting for a bunch of reasons. Uh, the metaphysical question of whether ghosts are real, whether they can give us accurate information, uh, the moral hypocrisy displayed by Saul here, first banning all magicians and mediums, but then seeking one out when he's in a tight spot. And I think this probably is one of the morals of this story, the idea that King Saul had fallen from grace, that he was making poor choices, and this was going to lead to his downfall. Okay. So that's all pretty confusing. But it's going to, I think, even get stranger now, because what starts happening with Christianity in Europe in like 300 on, 300 CE or AD on, is that Christianity starts to spread and eventually becomes the, like, the official religion of Europe. And we've talked about this before. In the early days of Christianity, there was all sorts of different versions jockeying for position. And each one, I would say, is stranger than the previous one. And the one that eventually starts gaining ground is what we now think of as Catholicism. And it really takes off once Emperor Constantine officially legalizes Christianity in the early 4th century, and then even converts to Christianity himself. Although, whatever his version of Christianity might have been, and how he saw it, was probably very different than what a modern Christian might think. Yeah. I mean, that's true of a lot of earlier, as you say, a lot of earlier Christian believers. Their, <laughs> some of their versions are very heretical compared to what we consider orthodoxy today. And fascinating. Um, we'll do whole episodes on it. Co Constantine, though, was also a bit cynical on this point because he converts on his deathbed, you know, just to hedge his bets. Like, just in case it's, it's, it's true then it's he's still going to get in there, but he won't be disqualified from any pagan afterlife. So he's like, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll just do this to make sure. And he still had to, got to have all the pagan fun. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, it's a, it's a strong move. A at this point, once we start to see something like Orthodox Christianity start to form, start to show up, the Orthodox Christian Church has to reckon with probably one of the trickiest things to twist your head around if you're a monotheist. 
the problem of evil, a.k.a. why does the world suck so bad? Yeah. The other proto-Christian belief systems, easy, like, evil is easy to explain. If you're a Gnostic, you don't have a problem explaining evil because the Gnostics argued that the creator of the universe was a petty, vain, twisted, and flawed being. So, yeah, so it's just baked into everything. Yeah, of course bad things happen here. Look, look at who made it, according to the Gnostics. The Manichaeans argued that the universe had to be understood as a constant struggle, a battle between two equal and opposing forces of good and evil. So again, the presence of evil isn't surprising. But both Gnosticism and Manichaeism were basically wiped out by Orthodox Christianity as being heretical. But then you have an issue, because Orthodox Christianity argues that there's one God, he's omniscient, he's omnipotent, so the fact that his creation seems sort of flawed and messy is going to take a little bit of explaining. How do you explain in a monotheistic system why the world seems to be so lousy? Oh, I, I like that you pause and look at me for that explanation. Yeah, it's <laughs> so only please two, answer, answer the question only of Only 2,000 years of theology have been grappling with that. Um, you're right. It is, a, it is a weird kind of side effect to this idea that a god is omnipotent and omniscient means that evil things must um, must happen with the god's sanction. And Dostoevsky does a lovely piece on this. Um, I think it's in the Brothers Karamazov, where, you know, he, he just talks about, like, the death of a child and, you know, or, or the murder of a child in war and, and says all of theology is basically... Um, put into question with that one death the whole edifice could come crumbling down so it is something that a lot of people have spent you know a, a lot of time thinking about now i know you've got a bunch of answers but i have to give you my favorite which is saint augustine who is worth going to for a lot of these discussions because he's known as one of the church fathers so these are people who, once the canon has been set, go and further elaborate, well, actually, what does it mean? Like, how does this stuff get interpreted? And uh, that's why he's, his writings are considered pretty important in the establishment of Christian orthodoxy in Europe. Now, Augustine writes that evil is essentially a byproduct of free will. And it's, it's the existence of freedom that creates the potential for evil because if, if you are free to choose God or not choose God, that's the only way the entire thing makes any sense is that you get a, cho a free choice in that matter. But if it's truly free, you must then be able to choose the thing that is not all good and all wonderful. You must be able to choose the thing that is bad. So it's, a, it's an accidental byproduct. In, in Augustine's theology, though, it's caused by us making the wrong decisions. And I think, and I, I think this is actually going to connect with what you want to say later. This is the issue with witches, right? Is that they've made the wrong choice and they have therefore brought an evil into the world. But they've done that out of their freedom. Exactly. And so they must be condemned. They must be, you know, maybe a good interpretation or a gentler interpretation is they need to be reformed. Or they are an existential threat to the community and must be done away with. But that explains human-caused evil. But what about things like earthquakes? What about bad weather, which certainly is not the, the result of human activity? Yeah, but as my daughter would say, is it though? I mean, I, she makes an excellent is point. It? <laughs> now, fortunately, we do have an explanation, and it comes from the book of Job. The idea of the book of Job is that God works in mysterious ways. Mm. That something that may seem at first to be a misfortune actually has some sort of larger purpose. And you can see examples of this as people try to struggle with bad things happening. I came across uh, a Franciscan chronicler named Salimben Salimbene, oh dear, Salimbene, Salimbene de Adam. And he wrote about an event in 1287 in Pisa in which a crowd had gathered in town to watch a large bell being hung in a tower but it tipped over, fell to the ground, and cut the foot off of a young man who was watching. But, as Selim Bene writes, this so-called accident was part of a larger plan, as, for he had once kicked his father with his foot, and therefore did not escape with impunity. Thus, by a misfortune <laughs> of this kind, God demonstrated his justice. Let that be a lesson to you, right? Uh... Kick your father, your foot gets cut off by a giant bell. 
But it's hard to find some sort of justice behind every bad thing that happens. Like, babies get sick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's the thing. And that's what Dostoevsky's worry was, is like, look, all these arguments aside, you can't justify a baby getting sick, even if, and this is Dostoevsky's point, even if everybody's reunited in heaven is super happy forever and ever, that still doesn't make up for the fact that, you know, somebody lost their child today. Yeah. So what do we do? What do we do with something like that? Well, one of the explanations ooh, that ooh. starts to... Oh, scapegoats. Exactly. Scapegoats are great. Right? Scapegoats. This is when you need a scapegoat. This is when you need a scapegoat. And one of the explanations that starts to form was that there were witches out here casting spells. Okay. Now, it's important to note that in this belief system, the witches themselves didn't have any power. So now we're getting into what I would say is the the version of witches that we really need to focus on. The witches don't have power. Instead, they're just a vehicle or a conduit through which the enemy can manipulate the world. And by the enemy, I mean... Satan. Satan. And it was in this time period, between like 1400 and 1500, that the idea of the witch as witch forms in Europe, I would argue. Okay. So here are some of the key ideas that show up in some of the writings at the time. And it's a mix of some old ideas with some new ones, which of course is how culture always works. The witch can be male or female, but female is more common, for reasons that we'll get into later. The witch uses poisons, curses, and spells to harm people in their community. They tend to work in groups or covens, and so there is a conspiracy there. There is a secret conspiracy of witch covens. Misfortune, which is anything from a cow not giving milk to illness to bad weather to whatever, could be explained by the deliberate machinations of covens of witches. Their rituals are deliberate inversions of Christian rituals in order to mock the Trinity. They fly to witch meetings. These witch meetings are called sabbats. Now, at the sabbats, the witches meet with Satan, and they kiss him on his exposed buttocks. And there was sometimes murder, cannibalism, and wild orgies at these sabbats. Murder, cannibalism, wild orgies. That is when you know you're dealing with a scapegoat. Yeah, because like that that is that's like the weather balloon argument for scapegoats. That's just the siren that that starts digging. When I hear um you know cannibalistic uh sex orgies and you know whatever child murder that all of this is done by this one group we're dealing with a scapegoat. Yeah, and the reason that we say that is because that exact claim gets said of a bunch of different groups. Like the uh, the Christian leadership accused the Cathars of similar acts in the 14th century. And this was the one that really, I think, makes you, makes you think. The Roman leadership accused the Christians of wild, drunken, cannibalistic orgies in the 3rd and 4th century. Yeah. And don't the Christians uh, accuse the Jews in the Middle Ages of yep. this? Isn't this also part of the blood libel and all of that? And then uh, QAnon accuses the Democrats of this? Like, it's weird how it's that trope, too. Like, yeah. it's... From the Romans, and maybe before, we have been accusing our scapegoats of orgies, cannibalism, and child abuse. Yeah. And, I mean, orgies aside, which I think are, are fine if consensual, the worst things that you can imagine in your society are things like child abuse and cannibalism. Like, if you get accused of that, even if you try to defend it, like, that stain will stick on you. That is a powerful way to accuse somebody. And so I think that's why it's such a popular thing. I don't believe the Christians of the 3rd and 4th century were having wild cannibalistic orgies. I don't think the Cathars were. No, probably not. And I don't think these witches' sabbats existed. Now, now the Democrats. Well, that's <laughs> different. That's a different episode. So unlike the ancient Greeks who would punish a witch if her spells allegedly caused harm, to the Christians now, the act of witchcraft was in itself evil. That means that using magic to protect yourself from witchcraft was also evil. Because it shows a certain lack of faith that you're trying to use magic rather than just trusting in orthodox religion. And denying witchcraft existed was also now turning into a crime. Uh, since witches were an official part of orthodoxy, it was heretical to deny that they were real. And not only was it like, uh, heretical to deny that they were real. It's also hella sus. Because who's going <laughs> to deny the existence of witches other than... A witch. Yeah. Or Satan. Or Satan. 
So accusing people of witches in this time period starts to become more common. And sometimes, I mean, it's hard to tell people's motives. Sometimes this would have been done out of a genuine fear of witchery. But you can also use these these accusations for political or financial reasons. Yeah, strategic ends. I mean, that's the problem when you have this kind of a culture of you can... Uh, anonymously accuse people and terrible things happen to them, even if they're demonstrably innocent. This is the problem with, you know, the KGB under Stalin. I mean, you just like get accused of something and poof, you're gone. And isn't that convenient if your boss is bothering you or somebody's like hitting on your wife or whatever is upsetting you and you could just make a silent phone call? Well, no. Not a silent phone call. That's a bad metaphor. You could just quietly, secretly make a phone call in the middle of the night and all your problems just vanish in thin air, right? So once you set up that structure, it is used for strategic ends by people. Yeah, right? I've got an example from the from the 1300s. Uh, the Knights Templar were a Catholic organization that escorted people to the Holy Land during the, the many, many destructive, catastrophic crusades that went on during the Middle Ages. And they came up with a system to make it safer to, to move people around. They came up with a system of promissory notes so that people don't have to actually carry money on them anymore. Mm. It's like an early form of banking. Yeah. The, the Knights Templar were some of the first bankers. And because they were some of the first bankers, the Knights Templar amassed massive amounts of wealth and became extremely rich and started lending money to kings so that they could carry off their stupid, pointless crusades. Now, King Philip IV of France had borrowed a ton of money from the Templars, and rather than paying them back, he just said, these guys are engaging in wild, drunken, cannibalistic orgies. They're in league with demons, they're worshipping idols, they're performing demonic rituals. And then using torture confessions that they extracted from some of the Templars, uh, they got all the evidence they needed, and their assets were seized, and dozens of them were burned alive at the stake. Mm. And King Philip didn't have to pay back the money he owed. And just as a caveat, this is then the beginning of a completely different conspiracy theory, which is that the Knights Templar weren't all exterminated, that they actually sat on top of that treasure that never was given up, never found, and that they continued on in secret and maybe continue on in secret today. You know, I feel like the listeners are getting a better idea of what it's like to for us to try to research this stuff in this episode, because we keep getting sidetracked, we keep getting confused, we keep having to like explain things and then explain the explanations. Yeah, and I haven't even started my disagreement with your whole discussion because I want to say that while everything you're saying is correct, there's also an entirely different reading of the uh, history than what you're presenting, which is not wrong, but also like the problem that we articulated at the beginning is we're dealing with things that happened 500, 700 years ago, and we're dealing with their representations to a large extent. And so now, as if we were conducting a witch trial in the bunker right now, <laughs> I will allow you to go on the offense. Well, certainly what Nathan is saying makes a lot of sense and does track the evolution of the concept of the witch in Western Europe, which is instrumental then also in influencing where we eventually want to get to in a future episode, which is Salem and the Salem Witch Trials of 1692. However, the issue with Nathan's account, which is also a, you know, a, a mainstream account with lots of data um, supporting it, is that it essentially focuses, it, it, I guess it's a bit one-sided. It's top-down. Exactly. It's one-sided because it's top-down. So the problem we have when dealing with the uh, Middle Ages, say, is that there are almost no historical records of what the peasants did and what they believed. So what we actually have are the records of the upper classes who wrote down what they were interested in. They wrote down what was um, occupying them. They wrote down uh, how they wanted things to change. They got really interested in theology, all that kind of stuff. Now, you might imagine from Nathan's account that things have gotten ideologically very rigid and that there is this monolithic ideology that has gripped Europe 
very intolerant of alternative religious views of alternative practices and that you know there's this association with witches and devilry and therefore there's going to be this maybe extermination there's going to be this institution of the inquisition which comes in and just squashes these beliefs and that of course did happen to some extent but it's I think somewhat... But it wasn't the only thing that was happening. Well, and and it's difficult maybe for us in the future to weigh the actual impact on the ground of elite beliefs. A lot of people... We have to think about that most medieval towns and political units didn't have a police force. They certainly didn't have like an ideological police force. There's no social media there is no other kinds of media you know some there's not much literacy exactly there's virtually no literacy among the peasantry so what does the farmer out in this you know italian countryside somewhere or the north german farmer or the you know the english peasant what do they actually believe one of my favorite historians of religion he's a guy named carlo ginsberg his contribution i guess to this to this whole discussion is that what he manages to get his hands on are inquisitorial records. So the Inquisition, when they called one of these people up to, you know, get them in trouble for their errant beliefs, they would actually make a record of what the person who was being called up believed. And they they were very forthright about it. They would record a lot of this. And this has given us an access point into some of these um, peasant folk beliefs that were happening across Europe on the ground, as it were, that are completely different from what Nathan is talking about. And here we have a different version of what witchcraft is emerge. So there is the elite sense that, okay, look, there's there's got to be a reason for evil, and this is maybe a convenient explanation, and you might see examples of it in history. I think you're going to give us one later with King James, where you're like, okay, that's that's the work of witchcraft, and this is why things are going bad. It works conveniently as a scapegoat. But what's actually, what are the peasants actually doing? They're doing things that might look like witchcraft, but they don't think it's witchcraft. They also don't think that it's anti-Christian. If you ask them, is this in accordance with the will of Christ or the will of God, they will say yes, even though what they mean by that is totally different what the clergy means by that. And so a lot of scholars have started to note and worry about the multifarious expression of religious beliefs and practices that we are simply unaware of in European history because we have been focusing mostly on the historical literary records. Yeah, so to put that on a bumper sticker, there's going to be a difference between what the elite think a witch is and what's going on with witches and what all of the peasants are actually doing and and worrying about and caring about. And because of the way that history works or doesn't work, we're going to have the elite very overrepresented in the description of what things were like in their day. Can I give an example? Is this a good time to bring up a witch trial? Uh, I can't think of a better time. Right? Let's ta- let's do a witch trial. So this one comes actually from one of the books Carlo Ginsberg wrote that I would recommend. This one is called, if you're interested in this kind of stuff, it's called Night Battles, Witchcraft and Agrarian Cults in 16th and 17th Centuries. And I'm not going to read really from it. Um, this is the first example that Carlo Ginsberg looks at. And again, it comes from, it, this time, Italian inquisitorial records. And look... The names are the names are really long. There's like everybody's got four or five names plus titles. They're all in Italian. Uh, Nathan helpfully explained that my Italian accent is horrible, so I'm going to be very vague about this. Okay, I'll tell you the following things that are that are useful. It begins on the 21st of March, 1575, and we are in the area of Italy known as Friuli. That's F R I U L. I, and we're dealing with two guys. One is named Gasparuto, and the other is named Moduccio. Okay, Gasparuto and Moduccio are two guys who are called in front of the Inquisition. Basically, what happens is this. There's a guy whose kid is quite sick, 
and he goes to a local healer. In this case, it was Gasparuto. The local healer is able to help him out and his, his kid recovers. And as part of his recovery, he gives the kid an amulet that's supposed to ward off evil and help in his recovery. It's a magical item. Now, the father, is, who's very happy about this, it does not run to the Inquisition to rat him out or anything, but it does emerge um, when priests go traveling through and are talking to the community, it emerges that there is this healer, and it turns out that there's more to him than that he just heals. He also apparently uh, partakes in night battles against evil forces. So now, now, the, now, this part of the story is going to get a little bit hallucinogenic. You really got to throw yourself back, like let go of all of your modern conceptions about existence and reality <laughs> and, and just sort of let this story flow over you. Actually, Ginsburg directly takes on the question of were they just taking a lot of hallucinogens? <laughs> because it is that bad. Like it is so bizarre from our modern for our modern ears that the easiest explanation, which Ginsburg though says is not a useful explanation if you look at all the data. Um, but he does ask, are they just getting really high? Or they're just eating bad bread with ergot on it. Right, or something else, because they talk about anointing themselves with oils. Are they are, are they basically dosing themselves really hardcore on something and then tripping out? Okay, anyway. So Gasparuto and Maduccio, they are two guys. They're basically part of this group called the Benendati. Now, the Inquisition doesn't know who these guys are. They don't know this group. And so they're trying to figure out are these people heretical? Are they in league with the devil? Have they done something that puts the community at risk? So this is what the Inquisition is doing. They're going around figuring out if orthodoxy and doctrine is being followed such that the community is safe, people will go to heaven, all that kind of stuff. So they're, they're, they're genuinely trying to figure out his belief system. That's the gold for us, of course, right? Because now we get to learn, well, what does somebody accused of witchcraft themselves actually believe? And this blew my mind because Gasparuto and Maduccio talk about how they leave at night in certain what are called the ember days. These are specific days related to Christian, Christian liturgical calendar. And they go out and they do ritualistic battles with evil forces. And what they're doing is they're battling for next year's harvest. And if the evil forces, who are witches, win, then, then there'll be something like a famine. And if uh, the Benandanti win, then the harvest will be plentiful and the livestock will reproduce and there will be milk and honey and all this kind of stuff. Now, what emerges in the Inquisition as they go further into, well, you know, when do you go and how do you get there? It turns out that both of these guys don't actually go physically to the night battles. They let their spirit be transported often by an animal while they're in some kind of lethargic stupor and they go and their spirit goes and does battle with the witches. What now happens is that the inquisitors are trying to figure out or are basically trying to pigeonhole the Benandanti as themselves witches. But these guys are like, no, no, we're not the witches. They're the witches. The witches are the bad people. We're the good people. We're the one who saved the harvest. And there, the Inquisitor's like, no, no, you are in league with the devil. He's like, no, we're in league with God. And then they try and determine, you know, who is sending, who is actually sending the spirit out. And what emerges over a period of time is, one, the Inquisition is not really that, like, they're not angry. Here, they're not really, they don't see this as actually as much of a threat as Nathan might have described it earlier. Like, it's certainly not that they are, you know, undermining the community because they're in league with the devil. If anything, they've been led astray and they need to be. But on the other hand, there's a kind of a paternalistic condescension for these peasants and their silly ideas and just trying to, like, get them to stop messing around and just, you know, like leave it all and just, just get back into the fold already. This for me though, disrupted a lot of this kind of the, I think the both of the ways that you and I started the podcast with these, first of all, these, these renditions of who witches were. And then also 
how it is that that we what is at stake is not whether like actually almost in ancient Greece what's at stake here is not whether they are performing magic but whether it is done in the service of Christ or in the service of the devil and again like what's not at, what's not being debated here is whether my spirit goes at night and does battle with evil forces in order to save the harvest it's just did God want me to do that or was it a trick played on me by the devil folk beliefs are often related to elite beliefs, but at the same time, really their own thing. And, and we have as much a translation and understanding issue between time as we do between classes in these, in these societies. And so what we often think about in terms of witches, I think is to some extent a sales job by some militants within the church who are really upset about this, as opposed to what's actually happening on the ground. So, you know, when I showed up today, I asked Nathan, I'm like, what is a witch? Like, what are we actually talking about? Because we do have these various different understandings all playing out at the same time like you have the inquisition who thinks witches are in league with the devil there is no alternative you have these peasants who are doing witch-like things but don't see it as witchcraft and, and in fact see it as as like a holy endeavor and that this is really what's at stake now on the other hand we are not saying that the inquisition was some sort of fair-minded no and gentle sort of nudging people towards salvation. And I think partly in because of what you're talking about here, the, the sort of great big mess of beliefs, what we start to see is we start to see like a bunch of literature show up trying to define exactly what it means to be a witch. And while we often have the belief that reason and rationality and human rights and dignity all progress as we move forward in history, I'm going to make the argument that in an attempt to try to establish the rules of orthodoxy, the idea of the witch is going to start becoming more clear, and the elites and the authorities are going to become more strict and violent towards those people who are, by the elite's definitions, witching it up. And it's going to take the form of the witch trials of the early modern period. But that'll have to wait for another episode, as we slowly and carefully work our way towards what we originally wanted to talk about, which is the Salem Witch Trials of the 17th century.